Amen. Thank you, guys. Haley, Tiffany Paxton, thank you for leading. Devin, ripping leads this morning. First time with us. Thanks for being with us, man. Glad you're here. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians 3. It's where we're going to be today uh, as we talk about life in the gospel as a part of our foundation series. Uh, But before we do that, I want to take a moment um, to really just center in on the reality uh, of, of where we were last week uh, as, we, as we build into uh, another step in our foundation of the Life in the Gospel series today uh, by looking at a couple of verses, verses rather, uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. I um, want to take a moment to, to dial in on these things and really just, just call us into a moment where, where we can pray uh, and step into the deep understanding and the reality of, of who God is and what he's done in life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And now our unity, our union by his indwelling spirit. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and it says this. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, look, we all come into this place this morning from different places, different backgrounds, different experiences. Uh, some of you may have had the best week of your life. Some of you may have had a horrible one. And others just kind of, we all had maybe just a eh, right? Just kind of one of those middle ones. Um, challenging things, beautiful things, glorious things, uh, mundane things even. But in the midst of all of that, we have the opportunity to recognize this morning, delight in, and thank the Lord for um, the oneness that we have in Christ. That we have one Lord. That we're unified in Him by one Spirit. One true faith. One baptism. This is what we experience and we participate in as people who are gospel people. Been drawn together in Christ. Uh, so I don't just invite you in this moment uh, to bow your head. Let's just take a moment um, to embrace some silence for a second. Uh, really, truly seek to, to listen to the Lord uh, and to truly confess the oneness that we have with him. So if you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, It is no secret to you that we are individuals, and we often think in individual ways, and we start with self, and yet, God, you've designed us, you have created us to participate in this glorious gospel, this good news, not just as individuals, but together. As a part of one body. Father, as we, as we look to be encouraged, exhorted, convicted, challenged, and comforted by your word this morning, would you draw us into the reality that we are one in you? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, Colossians chapter 3, and, it, and it's a rather lengthy like read that we'll do together on the front end. We're going to be in verses 5 through 17, and the, really the crux of today is really found more in 12 through 17, but it's really important uh, for us to see and experience the context uh, of what is written here. Uh, in so many ways, it's quite hard to explain the reality of what's presented apart from kind of giving an explanation of um, the entire chapter in, in, in one sense, and even the things that build up to it and, and lead from it. Um, but I think it'd be helpful for us to just read this entire passage. Uh, and then I just kind of want to spoil alert this thing right from the beginning. All right, we're, we're going we're gonna to try to really step into four things today. Um, the first of which is this. Um, I, I think this passage affords us the opportunity to recognize some other passages in Scripture and, in fact, the reality that there is a theological truth that just hits us that we're going to read this passage and you're going to see a list. You're going to see a list of all these different things, and this list is for you and me. We're called to it, to do the things in the list, 
And yet the reality is, in this text, we're going to see a very clear picture that whatever we are called to do is only a result of the revelation of what God has already done. So that's the first thing this morning to remember. That whatever we're called to do, it's only possible, is truly empowered by what God has already done in Christ. All right? And then here's the other three, and this is just the, 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 the sermon points. I want to give them to you now. I want you to think through them, and I want you to process them. Three things that life in the gospel is. The first one is this. It's a corporate endeavor. It's something that we do together. Life in the gospel is a corporate endeavor. The second thing, life in the gospel is where compassion is expressed. And then the third thing, when we really live in the gospel together... In a corporate way, we express compassion. This is the result. Christ is exalted. So gospel life looks like this. Truly, it's a corporate endeavor where compassion is expressed and Christ is exalted. Now let's look to the text that reveals these things. This is God's word, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. It says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. Um, So so we're in a series called Foundation, and over the course of the last few weeks, uh, we've been seeking to express and quite frankly really define who it is that we are from the scriptures. And I mean that in a personal sense, in an individual sense, that we would come to and recognize and have an understanding of our need for a personal recognition of who Jesus is, and yet also that we would collectively, together, as, as a corporate body, as Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea specifically, recognize what is our foundation. And this is the vision, this is the goal, this is the hope of who we are as a church, that we would be people to whom the gospel is everything. We'd be gospel people. That the central focus, the foundation, that indelible mark, that fingerprint, that thing that defines us is truly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we believe that that happens, the way it fleshes itself out here, the way that we not only reveal that to one another but also to the world is that we do these three things. That we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ We live in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So over over the preceding weeks, we've really been in the believe-in spot, where we spent three weeks talking about what it means to believe in the gospel, to recognize what the gospel is, the very good news that Jesus Christ has come to us, his kingdom has come, and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection that changes everything in such a way that when we repent and believe in Jesus— We now are united to God. We're God's family. Our sins are forgiven. We're restored. These incredible things. In that belief, 
We took a week to really look at an Old Testament story and the picture that in, that in the canon of Scripture, that in all of Scripture, everything points to Jesus. This story with David and Mephibosheth where we see there is one who in a, in a, in a, in a cultural way is not welcome, is not fit, is not worthy, and yet comes and is restored That there's this one who has kingship and power ability and he draws in with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. It points to, it's a picture of the gospel. And then we got to a place where we recognize, look, if we want to continue in our belief, we want to do that, we got to keep the gospel before us consistently. That was, that was what we did in, in, in the time where we looked at what it means to believe the gospel. Last week, we launched into a place where we'll remain today, a place where we explore what it means to live in the reality of the gospel. Last week, if you weren't here, we spent time in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, and the picture of the understanding that the very heart of Jesus is that you and I wouldn't be people that just like tolerated each other. We wouldn't be people that just put up with each other. In fact, we'd be people that really loved each other. And then Jesus gives and qualifies the degree to which he desires for us to love one another. And it's this, with the same love that God the Father has for Jesus the Son. And the love that Jesus the Son has for his heavenly Father. His Father. That that co-eternal, mutually reciprocal love, this beautiful, astounding, perfect love, would actually be present in our lives with one another. That's the very heart of Jesus. And today, in this passage, we get a picture of how to do that, of how to live that out. Paul describes it as putting on the new self. Um, and today, as we look to this, uh, the first thing, before we get to those points, I told you, um, look, the practical understanding of what we do, because we're going to talk about what to do today and how we practically live, like real applications, real steps we'll take to love one another. But we've got to understand that that only comes as a result of the revelation of seeing what God has done first. What God has done for us first. I want to use two passages to illustrate this in a way where we can look through the canon of Scripture and you can see examples. Because look, the reality is you look through all of these letters. Go read the New Testament, as many of you have and you are doing right now. Look into the New Testament and I challenge you to go to a place where you find instruction, you find guidance, and not just suggestion, but imperative commands to live in a way that honors the Lord. And if you go to those places and you find those things, you will find that they are only empowered by, and they're only a result of what God has already done. Two examples. One, uh, Romans 12, I think is a passage that we've talked about a lot uh, over the past few months and something uh, that I think is really helpful for us to see in just a very succinct way. In Romans chapter 12, Paul's writing, and in that chapter, there's all these incredible things that he urges believers to do, right? And, And it's the core of, and it's the heart of some people, like rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If you, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to Romans 12 right now, and you can look down that list, and there's all of these incredible things that you see that are there before you. And I wanted to read the whole thing. We just don't have time to read the whole thing this morning. Look at Romans 12. You see all these incredible things. You're like, how, how does this happen? We get a picture of what to do and the fact that that's only empowered by what God has already done. This is what Paul would say. Romans chapter 12, he would say, I urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. That this would be, in essence, their spiritual act of worship. And that you're transformed by the renewal of your mind. Not by the thoughts of this world, the things of this world. So that in that transformation, we can understand what God's will is. His good, His pleasing, His perfect will. How do you do that? How do you get to that place? You and I can't just like jump up, even though we might have all the desire in the world... To do this stuff. To go do all of these things. How do we do it? He tells us. It's in view of God's mercy. That's how we get to the place where we can do these things. Where we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. It's a result of this. And it's this. It's a result of the gospel. 
We do this because of what Christ has done for us. The mercy, the grace that we have received through his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's that gospel that empowers us, the revelation of what God's done in Jesus, that empowers us to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Because here's the reality. I'm sitting in a room full of people that want to please the Lord. We want to do that. Quite often we're doing it in our own power. We're striving, we're mustering, we're hoping we can do this thing, and we fail to believe the gospel that it helps us live in the gospel. All right? One other passage, um, Exodus chapter 20, uh, an Old Testament passage that is incredibly familiar to you um, because this is where you find the Ten Commandments. And, and we know these commandments. We really do. We, we, we know them as believers. And quite frankly, a number of us know them just culturally. And people in our culture that, that do not ascribe to faith in Christ, do not trust Jesus they even know these commandments, and they see them as things that are beneficial for corporate life. As believers, we often recognize this as a list of things that we're called to do, and yet we fail to see what empowers it. I hear the Ten Commandments like quite, quite frequently, and yet I always fail to hear this part. This is the beginning. Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 2. And God spoke all these words saying, listen to this, hear this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's not just a, just a list that he gives them to do. He gives them the reason for which, and God describes what he has done. God goes before his people. He goes before me and you. It is what God has done on our behalf that empowers us to live in obedience to him by the Spirit. So the practical understanding of what we do always follows. We need to understand this for every time the scriptures are before us. The practical understanding of what we do always follows what God has already done. Because we're good at running to the what do I do parts, right? Um, We're really, really good at that. And there's a bunch of them here today in this text in Colossians chapter 3. To really set this up, I really believe that if you look into the book of Colossians in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you get this very clear picture of everything that Paul is building towards. He's telling this church, he is telling the church, effectually, he is telling you and me, he is telling our church, the crux of everything that's in this writing is this. Just as you receive Christ... So walk in him. Continue in him. Paul is saying, as you've believed the gospel, continue to believe the gospel. And he gets to this point, he builds up to this point in this incredible treatise in chapter 1 where he describes all these things, some of which we've already sung this morning. This recognition that Jesus Christ is the very image of the invisible God. He is preeminent, firstborn over all creation. What we sang this morning, it is very much in him that all things are held together. All things. That everything is created through Jesus on earth and in heaven. We see this in Colossians 1. And that it is by this Jesus, it's by his very blood, that he has reconciled us to God through the cross. This is the reason for which we can continue in what we've believed. Jesus empowers it. And then in chapter 3, you're presented with this picture of Paul saying, here's what you do. Here's what the Christian life looks like. It looks like putting on the new self. Here's the thing that's unique. I bet if you have a copy of God's Word before you, and I would encourage you to do that each week to bring a copy of God's Word, you can see Colossians chapter 3 at the very start of it. I bet your heading says something like, put on the new self. What's wild about this is that's singular. Right? I mean, I'm not great at English, but it feels like this is singular. That's the way it reads. To put on the new self. So when I read that, it is very hard for me not to see it as like, oh, well, Michael is called to put on the new self. This is a singular thing. This is a me thing. But in reality, that new self that Paul describes is actually, and we'll see it down, I think it's in verse 15, yes, one 
body. That's what the new self is. It's corporate. So this is point number one that we see in the middle of this passage is that life in the gospel, what it means to live in the gospel, we have union with God, and as a result, we have union and unity with one another. Life in the gospel is a corporate endeavor. Because that self refers to the body of Christ, meaning us, not me. Not just I, this is us. We do this together. How does that happen? Paul says, put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We're beginning to see this list. He did the same thing in verses 5 through 11, right? We get all the don'ts. Don't do this stuff. Put off. Put this away. Sexual immorality. Covetousness. All of these things that we're called to put away. The slander. The malice. The anger. All of these things that used to define us in the old self. We're called to put those away. How do we do that? Look back up into 3, 1 through 4. And you see one of the most beautiful pictures of understanding, of identity, of what it means to be a Christian. He tells them, since you've been raised with Christ... Set your minds on things above. And then he gives even more reasons as to how we can put off all that old stuff. He gives us a revelation of what he's already done, what God has done for us. Do you know what he's done? He's so united us to Christ that it is not merely in name alone, but our very life is hidden with God. Our life is hidden with God. This is reality. And it is so hard to reorient our our human earthly minds to this. Because I look around and I see your life before me, right? But spiritually, you need to understand this, that your life is hidden with Christ in God. And he goes so far as to say, when Christ, who is your life, appears. So he says it again. Christ is your life. This is the motivation. This is what God has done that enables us to put off all of these things. And then he drives home the point of the corporate nature of what it means to live in the gospel. That this is really a corporate endeavor. He says, look, this is not about where you come from. It's not about whether you're Jew or Greek. It's not about what you look like or even what physically defines you. It's not about whether you're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. He says it's not how you relate to society. It's not whether you're a slave or you're free or you're a barbarian. And this sounds like a Star Trek word, but it's not. A Scythian, right? It's not these things. It's not this stuff that defines you. What defines you is Christ who is in all. He's helping them understand that what it means to live in the gospel is to be a part of one body corporately. And look, all these things that we're called to, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, all bound up in love, which ties them all together. You can't do that by yourself. Compassion necessitates the other, another person. You can't experience that by yourself. So I grew up, um, like I'm four and I have one brother, and I'm four and a half years older than him. And so like I'm at, I'm at the age, like especially like six, seven, eight, in this area where like I'm just falling in love with sports, right? I'm, I, I play t-ball, and then I play baseball. Uh, and when I'm home, um, I want to I play. You don't ever want to stop playing. You want to keep playing. Now, my brother, four and a half years younger than me, one, he's a little bit too young, and two, he just wasn't all that interested in sports like I was. And so I did this thing where it's almost I pretended like I wasn't alone, and I bet there are some of you that have done this. I took a tennis ball, and I'd walk down the, the, drive, or walk down the front of the house and go down the driveway, and above the garage, I would throw this tennis ball off the brick to just like... Have a catch with myself, right? And it's great for like 30 seconds. You're getting the feeling of, hey, I'm catching this and this. I'm having a lot of fun here. But the reality is you're alone. And then you throw it off the weird brick and it bounces sideways and the ball's gone in the woods and it's all over, right? Um, But look, 
you're trying to do something that in many ways is really impossible without someone else. Because it wasn't meant to be that way. How many of you have seen the movie Field of Dreams? All right, so a number of us. Uh, and look, I, I, I feel totally free in Christ uh, to tell you the whole plot of this thing right now. Because if you haven't seen it at this point, um, yeah, there's, I feel no condemnation um, at all. Um, look, here, here's Field of Dreams, all right? Um, Kevin Costner. His name is Ray. He's this farmer in Iowa. Uh, he and his wife Annie and their daughter, they have this farm. Uh, and, and in a classic story of struggle, Ray is at this place where they're really, it's a real challenge to meet the mortgage on this land. Everyone is encouraging him to sell it, everyone around him, even to the point where Annie's going to stick with him and she's going to trust him. But you can kind of sense and see that she's like, I don't think that we can hold on to this. I don't think that we can do this. And in the midst of this tension, in the midst of this struggle, Ray hears this voice that comes to him. And this voice says, and you know this, if you build it, he will come. So the couple things happening here. One, you're watching this, and you're watching this story of This guy, who's a farmer in Iowa, who hears this crazy voice, and he's supposed to build something in order that someone will come. And he goes through this process of searching and trying to figure out what it is, and he comes to the recognition that he's meant to build, in the middle of his farm in Iowa, a baseball field. A diamond, a baseball diamond. And that's the crux, in many ways, of of what the to-do is, but there's actually a why. Because he builds this field, and then this thing starts happening. What starts emerging from the corn? Baseball players, the ghost of these baseball players. Famous baseball players, Schuster Jackson, scandal of 1919 uh, with the Black Sox, or, or just all of these old players come to play baseball but it's not about just about bringing these former greats to play it's instead really a story of him reconnecting with his father because his father Ray's father John is one who who comes out with these players and he's catching he's playing in this game there's one scene as the movie really builds its climax where his father and this like this plot sounds nuts right this is just like a guy builds a baseball field in his cornfield and ghosts of baseball players come out. Uh, as I say these things out loud, it's just really strange. Um, but also a classic in American cinema. Um, but here's the thing. His dad comes out and there's this night where he's like the last one to leave. And Ray tells him, his name's John, and he says, and it's obviously a very much younger version of his dad, but he says, hey, I've got some people I want you to meet. He introduces introduces John, his dad, to his wife Annie and his daughter. And as John's preparing to, strange as it sounds, walk back into the corn, um, <laughs> look, he, he, he's, he's leaving, and you can, you can hear the quiver in Ray and Kevin Costner's voice as he says, Hey, Dad. Because he, he introduced John to his family, but didn't acknowledge that it was that it was his dad. And he says, hey, dad, you want to have a catch? And the two of them begin throwing the baseball back and forth. It's incredible, beautiful picture of love. And look, here's the reality. The goal is not for me to make grown men feel feelings in here today, all right? But we get a picture that life's about experiencing something beautiful. Because if you look into what's happening in this film, these guys are just having a simple catch. They're just throwing the baseball back and forth. Catching it in the glove, pulling it out, throwing it to the other guy. Back and forth, over and over. But that catch does something really profound. It's the context, it's the environment, it's the way in which they're able to express love to one another. What Paul describes 
in Colossians chapter 3, what he describes is God enabling us through the gospel to love one another. Because you see what happens is there's this beautiful context in which we now have relationship with one another. Because look at the way that verse 12 frames who we are. We are chosen. We're holy. And we're beloved. We have new identity in Christ. Because of what God has done, now we get to go be these people who in this loving, amazing, beautiful way have compassion towards one another. And we're meek and we're humble. And when there's a problem, and there will be problems, when there's a conflict, we forgive one another. And all of this is bound up in love. But it only happens because of what God has done. He's made us chosen and holy and beloved. And this isn't just like something in Paul Peter would say this too. He'd call us living stones. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people of God's own possession that he so dearly loves. This is the story of who we are. And what God has done is he's made us, not a me, but a we. Life in the gospel is a corporate endeavor. Not individual, but together. We're called to pursue the Lord together. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this is what, this is amazing thing that happens as we look and we see that we're chosen, that we're holy, that we're beloved. We participate with, in union with God, the very heart that Jesus has for us, and we do it together. Um, there's these two guys, Mark Dever and Paul Alexander, I've been reading this book uh, and seeking to grow in my understanding and leadership of how we can have a truly healthy, beautiful church that reflects the very glory of God. Um, And this is something I've been reading over and over as I've come to this reality that we live in the gospel together. This is what Mark Dever and Alexander would say. Um, They describe this one body that Paul would talk about in verse 15. He says, he's, they say this together. They say the nature of the Christian life is corporate because the body of Christ is a corporate entity. While our individual walks are crucial, note this, this is not negated at all. While our individual walks are crucial, and look how strong this language is, we are impoverished in our personal pursuit of God if we do not avail ourselves of the help that is available through mutually edifying relationships in our covenant church family. This is it. This is exposition. This is an expression of what texts like these really tell us and help us to understand. This life, it's not just that it's not meant to be alone. We're not, we're not designed to be alone in our faith. So much so that we help one another. When Paul writes to the church in, in, in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he does this incredible thing where he describes the body of Christ. And he tells the purpose in chapter 12 of the gifts of the Spirit, the very spiritual gifts that we have. He says what the purpose is. He says in verse 7, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for what? The common good. It's for the life of the church. Our spiritual gift isn't just, it's not for me. It's for all of us. I'm supposed to share that. Also, here's the reality. I'm a pastor. I don't have all the gifts. I don't have them all. Some of you know me. There are those of you who have been gifted by God's grace with administration. I don't know if you've ever met me, but I don't like scream administration. (laughs) This is not me. I want to grow in that gifting, I'll be honest. But, but, that's, but look, we need one another. We need one another. The Christian life, life in the gospel, is a corporate endeavor. I want to say this like boldly to you and proclaim this to you. I think that there are so many of you, I would say something more beyond that. I believe that there are so many of you that know that. And yet, you're missing out. You're not experiencing it. 
Like, like you mentally assent to the reality that, okay, I get it. The Christian life is one, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And it's all, all wrapped together practically for us in the sense in one body. And yet you're missing out on that. It's not something that we're just called to know. It's who we're called to be. So the, the Christian life, life in the gospel, the implication of being redeemed is that now... We're a part of this corporate endeavor to pursue God together. Here's the second thing. It's the place, life in the gospel, as a corporate endeavor together, it's the place where compassion is expressed. Look at the way Paul describes the types of hearts that we have as believers. Not that we need to go get, but that we have. He says, put it on. You already have it. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. It's from this, it's from this place that that love is expressed. Love is expressed from a compassionate heart. It's from this place that we can be humble and kind and meek and that we can forgive one another. We can bear with one another. It's truly love that binds everything together. And we're called to love each other. What is this compassion? What is this love? What does it look like? Here's the reality. I was reminded of this in a helpful way by a dear friend. Liking one another is a bonus. Like, and I like, I, I like to like people. I traditionally want to be one who's like, hey, I like you. You're good people, you know? I want you to understand this reality. Like is a bonus. It's awesome when we like each other. Love is a command. Jesus commands this. Look into the Sermon on the Mount. Look into the gospel teaching. Look into John chapter 13. You will see that Jesus commands us to love one another. So much so that it is the very fruit, it is the very evidence that we actually have union with God and union with one another. They will know we are Christians by our love. This is how people know. We love one another. How do we do that? This word, compassion, the here, the root of this word, compassionate, can be translated bowels of mercy. Bowels of mercy. It's a strange phrase. We're getting weird this morning, right? Iowa ghost in a baseball field and bowels of mercy. But bowels of mercy means the very seat, the very resting place of all emotion. So in the ancient world, this was the idea that, that this is the place, the, the guts from which who you really are sprang. And so what Paul is saying in this moment is that we love each other from this place of real depth. Real depth. That word compassion echoes this passage in Matthew chapter 9 where Jesus sees people. The phrase, and I think you know this probably, is that he looks upon the multitudes and he has what? Compassion, right? Now, he would describe them and these people as sheep without a shepherd. And now, while we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, not as sheep without a shepherd, we have the good shepherd, we trust in Jesus, there is still this recognition that we need to live in deep love for all the saints, Love with one another. How do you do that? How do you get to that place where you say, look, I can love you from like the depth of my guts. I've been so transformed. I've been so changed. You know how you get there? You know how to live in the gospel in that way? You believe it. You believe it. You recognize that God, his son not sparing, has come to you. Not that you went to God. But you recognize the depth of the gospel that you were dead in your sins and God came to you in Christ. That's powerful. The fact that you didn't deserve anything. Quite frankly, you deserved worse than one thing or anything. You deserve worse. You deserve death and hell. And yet this great exchange has been made. Where the one who is truly righteous, Jesus Christ, has taken your place. Our judge and our defender suffered and crucified. 
This is the place in which we find forgiveness. And when you and I believe that, when we keep, and this is why we preach this, why we say this, we have to keep the gospel before us. Because if we do, if we continually keep the gospel recognition before us, that everything that I do is only a result of what God has done for me, then now, by God's Spirit, it's actually empowered to happen. I can love you because I recognize that in my deepest moment of depravity, and I'm talking about gross, ugly, sick sin, God saw me and had mercy on me and grace for me in Jesus. It's from that place I start to get these new guts. These are chosen guts. These are holy guts. These are beloved guts. They're changed. My identity is changed. I'm new. And so now I can love the way that God has called me to. That's what happens. And then, and then Paul makes it this easy. He says, just put it on. Just put it, like, just put it on. Like it's just sitting there, and you just grab it and put it on. And I can identify with the strange challenge of something so simple because we do this in our home every morning, every single morning. There is this person who's created in the image of God, and her name is Clover. And she can't, like, get beyond the idea that, like, she can't be Ariel today at school. And so every morning, we're like, baby, and it's, it's not because we don't want her to be Ariel. We love her. You know that. But the reality is it's not helpful. And it's also 20 degrees. And Disney's not making fleece-lined insulated princess dresses yet. Um, <laughs> But but here's the thing. Every morning, it's just pulling teeth. Just put on. Just put it on. Just <laughs> It's right here. And mama laid it out for you the night before. You don't got to think about it. It's yours for the taking. Just put it on. Please. I want to have compassion, humility, and meekness. And I want to forgive you as we have conflict with one another, Clover. <laughs> But just put it on. It sounds so simple. Just put it on. To just put it on like you grab it off, off, off of the rack in the closet and you just put it on. Here's the thing. We can. Now look, I'm an adult male uh, who's learning what it's like to dress like an adult male, right? Even in my mid to late 30s and, and all that kind of stuff. Like I'm the kind of person that I don't really know what's in my closet a lot of the time. Because I'm a dude, and I just don't like really think about it. So there'll be this event and this time or this thing that we have to go to, and I'll look into my closet and realize, I don't have black dress shoes, apparently. I thought I did. Or, or I need this kind of tie for this, and I don't have that, right? Whereas you ladies have a different problem. You know everything that's in your closet, like everything. And it's astounding to me. And I know that you know this. You might say, well, I don't know everything that's in my closet. Oh, you do, and here's how I know. Because you'll have this thing that's coming up, say, on Saturday night. And you'll have done this incredible, efficient, perfect inventory. And now you realize, I don't have one thing to wear. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing. I've already run through these 300 things. There is no thing that I can wear to this thing. Right? Here's the reality. Our spiritual closet is full. It has everything. The stuff that I forgot that I thought I would need, and the stuff that I thought I didn't have, it's all there. And Paul says, put it on. How can we do that? Because of what God has done in Christ. We can, by the Spirit, step into this and obediently put it on. And look, we can do this with one another. We can be compassionate. We can be kind. We can be humble. We can be meek. We can be patient. Look, we can forgive each other. I want to tell you, I watched, I had the front, a front row seat to two brothers seeking reconciliation to forgive each other this week. It was like messy and weird, not ideal in so many ways. And yet I saw two people longingly seek to forgive one another. And that's Supernatural. It goes against every defense mechanism of pride and selfishness that we have. How is that possible? Because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done. 
So life in the gospel for us, we need to see it's a corporate endeavor. It's, some, it's the place where compassion is expressed, and we can do this. That's what it looks like. It looks like these things. This is what the gospel life looks like. Finally, what it results in is this. It's the exaltation of Christ. Life in the gospel is Christ exalting. Look down at verse 17, the climax of all these things that Paul writes. He says, that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's all boiled down to this. Everything that we do is for Christ to be known, for Christ to be exalted, for Christ to be lifted high. I'm I'm sitting in a room with you because you want to worship the Lord. You long to glorify him. How do we do that? We exalt Christ. This is the result of living life together in the gospel in such a way that reality has been totally turned upside down and changed for us. Look at what Paul writes when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So if we love one another, we're seeing the fruition of peace ruling in our hearts. How does that happen? One, Paul doesn't just take this for granted. This isn't like a beautiful phrase that he's saying. This is reality because he's talking about Romans 5. He's talking about we're justified by faith. And as a result, we have peace with God. Continue reading in Romans 5 and you see that it is the Holy Spirit that God has poured into our hearts. So when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, here's what you first need to see and understand. Here's what I need to grab is that the peace of Christ is here. The Holy Spirit lives within me. Will I exalt Christ and let it rule me? Will Christ be Lord in me by his Spirit And I'll love corporately and I'll love compassionately and I'll do so in a way that truly exalts Jesus because I'm living in accordance with what he desires. It's in his name. It's unto him. Life in the gospel is pictured in the body of Christ as we glorify him. So look, I'm going to ask our worship team to come. And we sang this morning this phrase, and this is the place where we're going to go to a place of application. And how do, we, how do we take these truths and really infuse them, place them, put them into our life? Um, we sang this song uh, before the doxology, Build My Life. And we sing these words, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I will put my trust in you alone, and I'll not be shaken. And the English language is so funny because one little thing can change everything, right? What's weird is that so much of my life at times, I've felt like it said this, I will put my trust in you, comma, alone. Comma makes a big difference. There's so much of my life where there's seasons where I just trusted in Christ and it was just me, just me and the Lord. And I missed out on fellowship with the body. I missed out on the recognition that I'm drawn into something beyond myself. Something so much more beautiful. And, and that, that scene is so palpable when you look and you see and you watch Costner, you watch Ray having this catch with his dad and it's cinematic and there's music behind it and it's beautiful and there's again all of these feelings that well up in you this beautiful thing that's happening and we have a front row seat to participate in this and see this every single week as we worship together not I will trust in you comma alone by myself but I'll trust in you alone as the only thing the object of my affection but I'm going to do it with my neighbor. I'm going to do it with my friend. I'm going to do it with my brother and sister because that, Lord, is how you've designed it. So we need to build our life that way. And look, I would just just, just ask you, um, and look, this is the challenging piece. Uh, it's 1045, and some, some of you folks are brand new, and I totally get that, so you might not be aware, but some of you are totally aware. I'm not going to look directly at you, but we have these things called community groups. And you're here, and you came because you thought church started at 1045, when you know in your heart of hearts it starts at 9. Because we've created this opportunity by God's grace to connect and be in community with one another. So I have this question for you that I want to ask you. How are you experiencing life in gospel community right now? 
Because if you're not in fellowship with brothers and sisters and other believers, you're missing out. And quite frankly, they're missing out on the blessing of experiencing your gift and knowing you and participating in gospel life with you. So I'm going to do this. I want to ask if, if you're a part uh, or if you're a part of leadership and you teach in a community group, I want you to stand up. All right. So Hunter has a group that meets on Thursday nights. Richard and Jason have a group that meets at nine in the morning. Ben has a group that meets at nine in the morning. These are people you can talk to. Like actual people, like you can come to me, you can go, you can go to Pax, you can go to Brian, you can go to any number of us. But these guys, you guys are going to have a seat. Um, everybody knows how beautiful you are and they're longingly coming to you in just a few moments with their desire to be a part of your group. But look, you want to worship at 1045? Great. Man, go find community at nine. Go be a part of that. And if you are a part of that community, and I know a number of you are in this room, are you being intentional to forgive Are you being intentional to live compassionately with the people around you? Has God drawn you to a place where you're existing in community with humility and meekness? God is calling you to do that and to pursue others as a part of community. So I urge you to do this. Just stand stand with me uh, as we take an opportunity to respond and sing these words. But we're going to trust in Christ alone the author and perfecter of our faith, but we are not going to do so alone. We're going to do it together. Let's pray and glorify God as we longingly do that in response. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we live in the Western world and we're individuals and we're self-first and we're selfish and there's so much brokenness in us and yet we realize that you've given us a beautiful picture of what it means to exist in life with you through your son by your spirit and it's this that we are chosen we are holy we are beloved and we are all these things together so God would you just knit the heart of our church together that, that we would be people who live life in the reality of the gospel with one another We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.